Good afternoon, Storehouse. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 1, 21 through 23. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's always a joy to be with you. Uh, in the event that you didn't catch Miss Emma, we're going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 1. We're looking at verses 21 to 23 this afternoon. While you open or load your Bibles, man, let me just dive into our time. So nearly every day, I walk my dog down uh, our street near our, our house, and we go around the block, and every day we walk by this one house that has this one sign that reads, He is the reason for the season." right? It's tacky, I'm not going to lie, but it is very true, right? As Christians, we are aware, or at least we ought to be aware, that the, the primacy of the Christmas season isn't so much the holidays and time off or the gifts, though those are wonderful, but it is Jesus himself. The question is, do we know why Jesus is the reason for this season? See, over the last several weeks, we have been examining the season of Advent and how Jesus entered into human history to fulfill three offices, that of prophet, priest, and that of king. Last week, we looked at the office of prophet as we saw Jesus proclaiming the gospel of God, saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. We concluded that the voice of God is most clearly heard through the word of God in Jesus. Today, we're going to examine the office of priest. And it is this particular office that most clearly answers the question that we're asking, and that is, why is Jesus the reason for the season? When some hear the word or the title of priest, some get a little nervous, eyes look up, shoulders get pinched back because the word can come with some negative connotation, whether it's because of previous experience within the Roman Catholic Church, the horrific scandals within the Roman Catholic Church among their priests, and I would add that the evangelical church is not off the hook either, okay? Let's just make that clear, but for others, when they hear priest, they hear of someone who has great reverence and care for the church. Here's the bottom line, okay? You and I need a priest. That's right, I said it. You and I need a priest. And I, want, I don't want you to shrink back from that word, and I don't want you to shrink back from that, that comment because this particular office, that of a priest, this particular office has been fulfilled perfectly by Jesus. Therefore, as a result, though everyone needs a priest, Jesus is the priest that everyone needs. 
So let me pray, and then we'll dig into our time. Lord, thank you for a day such as today. As we have sung praises uh, to you, may our hearts continue to praise and seek you through the proclamation and examination of your word. God, our simple prayer is that you would give us grace this afternoon. Therefore, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, in order to best understand how Jesus fulfills this office perfectly, we need to first consider what the ministry of a priest actually is. And so before we dig into Matthew 1, we're going to jump around a little bit from the New Testament and the Old Testament. I'm not going to cover every single passage, but if you jump on our website, the notes along with the cross-references will be available for you. Okay? With all that being said, <clears throat> much like the prophets, priests were called by God to serve him and his people. And we're going to look at the way in which they did this in at least four different capacities. These are very basic. These are not the only ones, kind of like when we looked at the role of a prophet last week. We looked at two basic things. When it comes to the ministry of the priests, we're going to look at four basic capacities. And here's the first one, and I think all of these are on the screen. The first one is that priests were called to serve as a mediator or a representative between God and his people. Yeah, that's a pretty short way of saying it. They were, they were called. God is holy, and he calls his people to be holy. Therefore, priests were set apart and served as representatives between God and his people. That was their first area of responsibility. Let's just call it that. The second way in which they serve God and his people is to atone for the sins of the, of, of the people through animal sacrifice. This is probably the most common task or the, common, the most common description that we have of priests. Uh, this is one of the most significant roles that they would fulfill. But what you and I need to understand is that the sacrifice of animals stood as a symbolic ritual or a symbolic ceremony of what or who was to ultimately come Forward. It was a foreshadowing of what Jesus was to do. More on that in a minute. Okay? <clears throat> in addition to that, the animal sacrifices that they performed, the animal sacrifices that they performed signified that the life of the animal is given in exchange for the life of the one who brings the sacrifice. This symbolic atonement communicated the covering of sin and the appeasement of the wrath of God. In other words, the animal took on the wrath of God by being sacrificed, and its blood cleansed the blood of the one sacrificing it. The priest was the one who mediated and handled this entire process. But in addition to that, we need to understand that the priests themselves were not sinless individuals. They were not perfect. In fact, they were fallible. They themselves needed to perform this ceremony in light of their own sins if they were going to approach God on behalf of the people. So for a moment, go with me to Hebrews 5. We're looking at verses 1 through 3. Beginning in verse 1, the author writes, 
For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So here we see that these men serve as a representative, as a mediator between God and men. He continues, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So there's that animal sacrifice. Verse 2, he, that is the priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So even he is fallible. He continues, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So once more, to summarize those first two things. One, priests served as a mediator between God and man. Two, priests, uh, one of their biggest capacities was to sacrifice animals in order to approach God in a way that was right. Continuing, moving forward. The handling of the animal sacrifice was such a significant role for priests, not just because of what it entailed, but because of the significance of salvation that came with it. If the priests mishandled this entire ceremony, it could jeopardize the salvation of God's people. That's how significant to this role, and in particular, this task was. So that's the third one, or excuse me, the second one. The third one is that the priests served God and his people by teaching the law of God to the people. This is Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. So much like a prophet who was given the words of God to speak to the people of God, a priest was tasked with teaching the people the law. This meant that the priests needed to know their Bibles, right? They needed to know their Old Testament scriptures. In addition to that, this meant that the priests were in a right relationship with God themselves. And finally, this meant that priests' obedience was considered a high regard if they were going to be representing uh, the people before God. And so they taught the law of God to the people. The fourth capacity is that priests prayed for the people of God. This is 2 Chronicles uh, 30, verse 27. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. Right? Priests served as intercessors by way that they would pray to God on behalf of the people. They would pray prayers of praise. Man, look at all that you've done. Look at how you have provided for your people. Look at how you have blessed for your people. They prayed prayers of lament. Look at what's around us, sin, death, and destruction. Oh, Lord, help us. They would pray prayers of supplication. Lord, this is what we need. This is where we're at. Would you supply X, Y, and Z? for us. The role and office of a priest was really significant, particularly in the days of the Old Testament. But with that being said, the priests were flawed. 
In all of this, when you read through the Old Testament, you also see their sins on display. On many occasions, we see priests mishandling animal sacrifices, abusing the word of God for personal gain in areas of authority or dominion over people, and the acceptance of bribes for their own financial gain. They were flawed individuals, and it is no wonder whether it's in the context of the Old Testament, the context of our time, or the context of Jesus' day that when it came to priests, people were very, very weary of them. But thankfully, this is not where God left his people. Though this office served as a way for God to minister to his people, there was one who would ultimately and finally and faithfully fulfill this office perfectly. But let us not forget The office of a priest, the ministry of a priest, was to serve as a representative between God and his people through holiness, atoning sacrifice, teaching the law, and prayer. These things were foreshadows of the one who would fulfill this perfectly. And now, let us go to Matthew 1. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In a nutshell, here's the overview of what's happening in Matthew 1, and it is that God enters into human history as the God-man Jesus Christ. And he does so in order to fulfill this office, this ministry of priest, perfectly, in order to save sinners so that they would be reconciled to God. Matthew breaks down the account of Mary, who became pregnant through the Holy Spirit with Jesus in her belly. And we see that Joseph is wrestling with this news because his wife is pregnant and he's not the one that got her pregnant. All right, so he's wrestling with this news. Uh, And what we see in Matthew 1 is that an angel appears to Joseph. He appears to Joseph in a dream in order to provide assurance, uh, uh, to provide assurance to Joseph with comfort and clarity specifically through the will of God. In other words, the angel doesn't appear to Joseph and say, don't trip, just trust us, keep going, right? Instead, what he does is he provides Joseph with clarity and comfort regarding the will of God and what the will for this child is. Now, we can talk about like what Joseph was thinking or feeling or how he responded to that. That's another sermon for another day. But for now, we will see that through this angel, we come to know that Jesus fulfills this office of priest perfectly in at least two ways. And this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. Here's the first one. We see it in verse 21. The first way in which Jesus fulfills this office perfectly is by saving sinners and reconciling them to God. Go back to verse 21. She will bear a son you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means savior, and it is Jesus who will save his people from their sin. I want to focus on two words, and that is the word saved and then the word sin. All right, it's right there in the text, especially if you're taking notes. Saved and sin. We need to answer the question, what is it that we're saved from? What is it that we're saved from? I'm going to give you a couple of things just so that we're clear, so that this would carry some weight. And so the first thing that we're saved from is the wrath of God. 
You see, outside of knowing Jesus, we stand condemned with the wrath of God over our heads. And it is through Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross that saves us, rescues us from the wrath of God. It is through Jesus that we will be saved so that we are restored to God through Jesus. In other words, so that we are brought into a right relationship with God because of Jesus' work for us. We are saved by Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. His blood is spilt so that we would be forgiven. The Christian is not saved simply to be better. The Christian is saved so that they would be made new. That's what we're saved from. So now the next question, or the next thing, what is sin? What is sin? We need to be clear about this. We need to be clear about what sin is because you and I have a tendency to muddy the waters when it comes to defining sin just so that we could justify our actions, right? Oftentimes, you and I may define sin as mistakes or poor choices, but sin is not only that, Often Christians say that sin is a mistake or it's a poor decision in order to soften or lessen the severity of their actions. Again, we'll use language like that in order to make ourselves feel better, to justify our decisions, or ultimately just to believe a lie. So what is sin really? Let's call it what it really is. In one sense, sin is debt. The Bible says that we are sinners, and as sinners, we are debtors who cannot pay this debt. The only way this debt is paid, the only wages that will cover it, is death. But this is not a financial debt. This is a moral debt. Our debt represents a failure to keep a moral obligation given to us by God. Let's set that in for a little bit. Our debt, the collection of all of our bad decisions, of our mistakes, quote unquote, represents a failure to keep a moral obligation given to us by God. Sin is debt. Sin is hostility toward God. You see, sin isn't just this external decision. It's not just this external action. It is inward hostility toward God. It is our motive. It is our heart. It is our deepest desires. It is our attitude. And apart from knowing God, Scripture tells us that we are at war with God, that we are hostile to the things of God, that we cannot please God Apart from his grace, hostility resides in our attitude, our motives, our rejection of God's words and will. This is why the Bible often speaks about our need to be reconciled to God. Here's the thing. In order to be reconciled, we need to be at peace with God first. In order to be reconciled, we must first be at peace with God. 
And we looked at that last week. Peace doesn't begin with ourselves. It begins with the Lord. Finally, sin is a crime. The late R.C. Sproul said it this way, sin is cosmic treason against God. In other words, it's twofold. We sin against God by doing what we shouldn't, or we sin against him with what we should do, we don't. When you consider sin, those three things, as debt, as hostility toward God, as a crime against God, it's a lot weightier than a bad decision. It's a lot weightier than a poor choice. Our view, most of the time, our view often neglects these truths about sin. We think of sin as something that isn't that big of a deal or that we can make it up in order to fall back into the grace of God or someone else. We don't take it seriously because as we looked at it last week, we don't take it seriously because the lightning bolt hasn't struck. The boiling water hasn't actually started to boil. The consequences of my decision actually haven't caught up to me, so I must be good. You are not lucky God has just not turned you over to your sin. That is called mercy, not luck. We will never take God seriously if we do not take sin seriously. As one pastor said, Christ, sin will not be bitter or excuse me, Christ will not be sweet until sin is bitter. The bottom line is, if we do not take God seriously, then we will never take sin seriously. And Jesus, who is God, took sin seriously, which is why he came to save sinners. And he fulfills this role of a priest in saving sinners and reconciling them to God. I'm gonna show you a few ways in which he does this. First one is, we're just gonna go down this list. First one is that Jesus proclaims the gospel of God. How does he fulfill this role? What does it look like in saving sinners and reconciling them to God? Through proclamation, Jesus proclaims the gospel of God. Jesus proclaims over and over again, repent of your sin and believe that God saves sinners in Jesus that this is not good advice, this is good news, that God loves the truth and he loves his people so much so that he's willing to speak a hard truth of repentance, but also that he is willing to save his people through the death of his son. We see that Jesus teaches, just like the priests in the Old Testament, over and over again throughout the Gospels, Jesus teaches people the word of God, whether it's to the religious leaders, whether it's him walking and traveling with his disciples, to larger crowds, smaller crowds. Jesus never compromises on the word of God, but rather faithfully teaches the word of God to all who would listen. 
Jesus mediates, unlike the priests who fell short as representatives, Jesus is the perfect mediator. In fact, he is the only and true mediator between God and man. The Apostle Paul says it this way, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only one capable through his sacrifice of reconciling us to God. That word reconcile, you're gonna hear that over and over again. That's restoring us to right relationship. Jesus is the only one capable. Jesus intercedes just like the priests in the Old Testament who prayed for their people. Jesus prays for his people, but he does not quit like the Old Testament priests who quit on the people, abused the role of priest, or ultimately died. Jesus, Christian, hear this, Jesus intercedes for you right now. Jesus is praying for you right now. It's a present tense when we read that Jesus serves as our intercessor. He is praying for you, Christian, to the Father on our behalf. Jesus advocates. He is our advocate. When you think you have really just screwed it up, Jesus steps in and advocates to the Father on your behalf. And he does so perfectly, not because you're trying to clean yourself up, but because he has done it for you on your behalf. He is our advocate. Jesus atones for our sin. Unlike the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament that were symbolic of the ultimate and final sacrifice, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice who atones for our sins by dying in our place. Jesus is our substitution. What must you do? Repent. That you would turn from your sin and turn toward Jesus because everything else he has done for you. There's nothing for you to do. The Apostle Paul once more to the Romans says it this way, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're taking notes on Romans 5.8, you might want to circle the word still. That is present tense. That's right now. And in the previous verses, Paul says it a different way, that at the right time, at the fitting time, Christ died for the ungodly. He is our substitution. Jesus cleanses. Unlike the Old Testament priests who had to perform uh, ceremony after ceremony for the purification of sins, Jesus cleanses you through his sacrifice once and for all because of his faithfulness, not yours, but his faithfulness. We got to park here for just a little bit because this is the distinction between God-centered religion and man-centered religion. See, when it comes to man-centered religion or philosophy, it is not only fallible, it is exactly that. It is man-centered. 
It preaches a gospel where you must clean yourself up. You need to man up. You need to do certain things. You need to figure your stuff out. You need to think positively and clean yourself up. Then you can come forward. It preaches do better, love yourself more, and just think positively about who you are. This is exhausting, it is, it is discouraging, it is disheartening, it is defeating. Even when you've conquered your own demons, it is incredibly exhausting because here's the thing, we are the problem. Man-centered religion does not and cannot take into account the deceit of the human heart. It does not cleanse you. It does not cleanse you of your filth because it cannot cleanse you because it itself is fallible. Travel with me for a moment to the 1990s when Metallica released their Black Album. That's what it was called. It wasn't that great, but if you like it, we'll pray for you. Here is what they say in one of their songs. It's called Until It Sleeps. Uh, it's not on the screen, so you just get to listen. Until It Sleeps. Here it goes. Where do I take this pain of mine? I run, but it stays right by my side. So tear me open and pour me out. There's things inside that scream and shout, and the pain still hates me. So hold me until it sleeps, just like the curse, just like the stray. You feed it once, and now it stays. Now it stays. Even Metallica is identifying something about us, that something is wrong within us, that there is guilt and pain and shame and hardship in us that we will not only encounter, that not only we will feel, but that it resides in us. And apart from Jesus, we can't do anything about it. Nothing else can actually cleanse us. And no matter how much we try, no matter how much we try to cover up, no matter how many things we adopt, whether it's things like essential oils or self-help books, whether it is we adopt other philosophies, it stays in us. And even a band like Metallica can identify something is wrong in us. And it won't go away. And nothing can take it away. Because I'm still here. That is the philosophy of man-centered religion. And even if it's not external, it's still internal because sometimes it's riddled with our arrogance and pride. God-centered religion, however, is not built upon man or man's faults. It is built upon Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. So while everyone needs a priest, Jesus is the priest everyone needs. He is the one we run to because it is only he who can fully cleanse us. The Apostle John says it this way, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
Jesus fulfills this office by saving sinners and restoring them to a relationship with the Father. But it's not just that. Jesus fulfills this office, here's the second way, by dwelling among us as one of us. Consider verse 23. All this took place, this is verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus fulfills the office of the priest perfectly because Jesus relates to us because he became one of us. His name, Emmanuel, means God with us, which speaks to his incarnation, that God took on the flesh, or took on flesh and dwelled among us. And Jesus relates to us in at least in two ways. More, but low on time. More. The first one is Jesus obeys. See, unlike the priests of the Old Testament who accepted bribes and were trying to do things for their own personal gain, who abused the word of God, Jesus was perfectly obedient to the words and will of God and was tempted in every way that you and I are yet is without sin. You think you know temptation, but the truth is you and I give in all of the time. All of the time. We don't know, you know what I mean? We don't know temptation. Where Jesus never gave in. His lifeblood was the word of God. And the reason this is important is because Jesus didn't just die a death in our place. He also lived a perfect life in our place. It is his obedience that enables God to give us his righteousness. On the cross, Jesus takes on our sin and in exchange gives us his righteousness. Number two is Jesus sympathizes. When it gets tough, when it becomes daunting, when it is overwhelming, when it just gets hard, when it's defeating and discouraging, and I promise you all of this will happen if you haven't experienced it, Jesus sympathizes with us, not just because he knows all things, but because he himself experienced it. Therefore, as a result, Jesus sympathizes with us by sitting beside us, providing us with comfort, and providing us with grace in our time of need. Hebrews 4, we read it earlier, Hebrews 4 says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus saves sinners and reconciles them to God. That is our confession. He continues, 
4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us with our weaknesses. In other words, we have someone, he's not far removed, he's not somewhere else, he actually dwelled among us. He knows exactly what you're going through, what you're tempted with. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God entering into human history meant two things, that it was only God who can actually deal with our sin, but God taking on the flesh means that he can sympathize with you and I in our times of weakness. Everyone needs a priest, and Jesus is the priest that everyone needs. By the grace of God, Jesus faithfully fulfilled the ministry of a priest perfectly so that we might be reconciled to God. Jesus is the reason for the season. Why? Because Jesus entered into human history to save sinners and to reconcile them to God. Oftentimes when it comes to these sermons, most people want uh, some application. Here would be your application. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your sin and turn toward the Lord Jesus. Number two would be rejoice. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus fulfilled this ministry perfectly so that you would be reconciled to the Father. Forgiven, new, cleansed. So Christian, Jesus is your perfect priest. Look to him. Run to him. Cry out to him. When you confess your sins to him, know that you stand forgiven by his grace. Know that Jesus is praying for you right now. Know that Jesus is your advocate. Know that as you come before him, you come before him as one who is redeemed and cleansed. And if you're not a Christian, Love that you're here because you didn't have to be. The Bible teaches that apart from knowing God, you stand before him condemned in spite of any good deeds that you may have beautifully accomplished. Because the Bible teaches that you cannot please God, that you are actually hostile toward God. Yet, He has made a way for you to be right before him. And that is through Jesus who stands ready to pardon all who are willing to receive him. So repent of your sin and believe the gospel of God. Receive a new heart and come before the throne of God covered by grace and cleansed. Church, everyone needs a priest, and Jesus is the priest that everyone needs. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are, we are debtors in need of your grace. 
And so, God, we ask that it would be your grace that would bind our wandering hearts to you because we are prone to wander. Lord, we don't enjoy talking about sin, but if we are honest, our life is full of sin and transgression, and we have not gladly believed your word. We have not followed you faithfully. God, give us grace today. Here and now, our hearts are laid out before you. Give us grace. Take our hearts, seal them with the comfort and conviction of your word. We are ever so thankful to you for Jesus, our great high priest who has reconciled us to you. We are ever so thankful to you for the Holy Spirit who resides in us and is our great helper. 